if you look up uh, Buddhism uh, online, um, on Wikipedia, for example, <laughs> Wikipedia is such an interesting thing that Wikipedia exists. <laughs> it's now our source for so much information. But if you look it up, it, Buddhism, is, Buddhism is described as an Indian religion based on a series of original teachings attributed to Gautama Buddha. They say that it originated in India sometime between the 6th and 4th centuries BCE and then spread throughout much of Asia. And it's described as the world's fourth largest religion with over 520 million followers or over 7% of the global population who are known as Buddhists. And then on from there, talks about it incorporating uh, traditions, beliefs, and spiritual practices based on the Buddhist teachings. So, um, and, and uh, interpretations of those teachings. And I think it's interesting to think of Buddhism as a religion. And if, if you spend any time in a Buddhist country, like for me, a lot in Burma and, and quite a bit also in Thailand, it, it's um, the sense of Buddhism as a religion is very strong there. It's the state religion in Burma and there are government branches of the government that are devoted to the uh, governing of and the propagation of what's called the sasana, the, the, the dispensation, the Buddhist teachings. It's a, a branch of the government <laughs> there. They don't have the separation of church and state in the way we have in the United States. And it's, it's, uh, it's held in a, it's, it's, it's different for people who are born into uh, Buddhist families and raised as Buddhists there. And of course, we have this debt of, I have at least, this debt of gratitude to all those who have been followers of the Buddha and would call themselves perhaps Buddhists and have kept this, these teachings available alive over the years. In Burma, there are places uh, called Yekta. Yekta is the Burmese word that is basically means a meditation center. And they are monasteries or nunneries. And they're also dedicated to the teachings and practices of meditation, different traditions of that there. But it's, uh, it's understood, or my understanding, I should say, is that it's a small percentage of uh, the population and, and of the number of places that are monasteries and, and nunneries and that kind of place that are actually interested in and, and doing any kind of meditation practice. And I remember hearing once someone said that in Thailand, they estimated that about 3% of the ordained Sangha, that is the, the monks and the nuns, do any meditation at all, only about 3%. So it's, you know, I had this image that everybody in Burma was meditating all the time. <laughs> Not even the monks and nuns are all doing meditation. They're doing other things that are part of Buddhism's uh, manifestation as a religion. And so 
it's, I, I'm starting with this introduction partly because I find it interesting and also because as a religion, Buddhism is a, is a little different from at least some other religions in that it's, it's also kind of like a science. <laughs> And at least the meditation practices, which one might be able to say of the, say the contemplative or meditative aspects of, of other religions also, which again, uh, are a small, um, a, a more small part of that, like the mystical traditions in, in uh, say the mystical tradition in Christianity or uh, Sufism, which is maybe a where you could see it as, and I don't know that much about either of these, so I'm not speaking as an authority here. Please understand that. But they they involve practices that are much more um, closely aligned to um, the meditation practices and the study of the mind, and uh, that that is really what that's about. But the Buddha was kind of very scientific in a certain way. And uh, if you study the, the suttas and, and then even the Abhidhamma, which is another uh, part of the teaching body that is really the Buddhist psychology and very analytical sort of map of the functioning of the mind as seen from a certain perspective, then, then it's, it's very kind of scientific and this, this very um, deep and complex analysis of the mind-body process, which is, is kind of what we are, are doing here. And so the certain kinds of meditation, at least, Vipassana, inside meditation, is much more of a, an investigation and a, an exploration and kind of like I've likened it to, to scientific field work. So there, it's, it's different from what we might call, see as prayer in other traditions. And the metta practice resembles prayer in a way, but it has this different intention. We're not petitioning a, a deity or an energy for help and assistance so much as really cultivating a quality of mind in the metta. We're actually trying to tune into and cultivate a capacity of our heart that's already there, but really to nurture and and have it blossom forth in these qualities of love and compassion and, and appreciative joy and equanimity in these very specific cultivations of wholesome, skillful qualities of mind. Kind of different uh, than a lot of prayer might be seen. And if you think of, I've said this before, if you think of a, a naturalist or a field biologist who's interested in studying a particular plant or animal or ecosystem, and they would go into the field like my friend and spend a lot of time in direct observation of that animal or plant or, or ecosystem in order to understand and learn as much as they could about, about its everything about it, just through observing it. And That's kind of what we're doing here. <laughs> we're spending a lot of time observing our body and mind very directly to try to understand 
what it's what it is and what it's doing and how it works and how it functions and what um, what within that the the basic thrust the overall thrust is to, is to understand it so that we can understand what leads to suffering and stress and struggle in our lives and what leaves leads in the opposite direction towards ease and peace and freedom and uh, the end of suffering the end of struggle and stress so I just find it interesting and, and also one of the most beautiful things about the offerings of these teachings in, in this meditation is that it's not the that we adopt a, a, a belief system or take anything on, on faith. It's offered as in this way that I said at the very beginning, this ehi pasiko, come and see. Here, here's something you can try and practice. See what you think. That's an offering in that way. And we've offered the teachings in that way this week and we'll continue to. And so in my, in my last talk, I spoke a lot about mindfulness of the body, one of the uh, areas of field work research we, we do. <laughs> and of course, you can't explore body without exploring the mind because you, we know the body through the mind <laughs> and they're, they're, they're intertwined and completely woven together and they impact and condition and influence each other. So, so if we study one thing, we study everything. It's, it's all woven in that way, but we can kind of you know, tune and turn our exploration in certain kinds of ways. And so we've also talked a bit about mind and mindfulness of the mind and Annes spoke quite a lot about this in the uh, instructions confused now was that yesterday <laughs> was that this morning that was your morning it was last night for me right okay <laughs> so um so i want to continue hopefully follow on with a little more of that exploration um, because i think it's powerful and there's a lot of useful stuff there and it's just very very interesting so uh we've we've offered the word chitta as the poly word that gets translated as mind, although, as I have mentioned, I think also, it, it kind of encompasses what we, at least in, in, in the United States, and then maybe in, in Finland also, and other places in the West, think of, of uh, as the heart, or maybe the, the realm of our emotions and things like love and um, stuff that we, we sort of hold a little bit separately. Um, so some people use, and I do myself at times, uh, define chitta as mind-heart. We, we can make, put mind-heart together into a sort of a new compound word. Um, kind of good, you know, Polly makes these compound words, so maybe we'll come up with a new language, a new version of English that has a lot of compound words, I don't know. So mind-heart. And so there's not an exact, to, to translate chitta as mind is not quite, not quite accurate in the same way to, 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 to translate the word dukkha as suffering is inadequate. It doesn't, there's a, there's a breadth of meaning of dukkha that the word suffering doesn't begin to touch. And, and this led to all kinds of problems, you know, the, some, some people, 
have their understanding is that Buddhism, the main tenant or, or teaching of Buddhism is that life is suffering. Good luck with that <laughs> or something, you know, but, but the Buddha didn't say just life is suffering. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a, not a clear understanding. The Buddha and his followers were known as very happy, contented, peaceful people. They weren't bummed out all the time. Oh, life's suffering. Well, okay. Well, I'll just do the best I can. That wasn't their, their attitude. So um, yeah, they were known, they were famous for, for as the happy ones. So that's a good that's a good sign for us because we might be feeling well. I, you know, all I see is a lot of dukkha. All I see is a lot of not having that much fun here. <laughs> but the trajectory is towards the deepest kind of happiness and contentment and ease and peace. That's that's independent of external conditions, uh, at least to a great extent. So, in in the United oh, I'm wondering in in Finnish language. What's the, how do you translate chitta? What does it mean? <laughs> is it the word from, is it kind of like in English? Is it, is it mind? Well, I don't know if I ever directly translate it. Well, I, I would say maybe nearly or nearly yamsudan mind and the heart, if I were to translate Thank you. You know, in, in the United States, and sometimes I'll even ask this question when I'm teaching. If you ask people where their mind is, most people, or they'll, or if they're just talking, say, "Well, in my mind," and they'll they'll tend to point to their head, and and you know the brain is there, and also you know the eyes and the nose and the mouth and the tongue. Did I miss anything? <laughs> There's all these sensitivities, a lot of stuff going on in in this part of the body. <laughs> It's, it's got a lot of bases, sense bases, and, and the brain is there, and the brain has some connection to the mind, and, and you know, we see this with brain injuries and whatever. There, there's a clear connection there. But it's really interesting because in other parts of the world, and for example, in Burma, people say, well, in my mind, or talk about their mind, and they put their hand here. <laughs> here, the heart center. This is where the mind is said to arise. And sometimes in meditation, and I've had these experiences myself, it, it's my experiences as, of mind as knowing, the knowing aspect of mind arising here and almost as a physical sensation. Now, maybe it's just my imagination. I don't know. I'm not going to say anything. I have teachers Paoxaida, for example, who is very um, revered <laughs> teacher, who's a master of, uh, of a certain style of meditation practice, but it's very powerful. He, he has, you know, all kinds of teachings around mind here, <laughs> and I can't even go into it, but that's interesting. So, so who's right? <laughs> I'm not gonna land anywhere. <laughs> I've had my own experiences. I tend to put mind here, but I'm not telling you one way or another. We, and we don't have to land on a, um, a decision. We don't have to say, oh, I'm a, I'm a mind here kind of person. And no, I'm a mind here person. It's not required to, to decide that. I don't think that's useful at all. But it is an interesting uh, 
thing to hold as kind of a, to me, it points to the fact that we need to be careful that our, our way of looking at things can get quite narrow around beliefs or around cultural um, beliefs, you know, of, of mind as something here, you know, well, that that's the science, you know, that's the this modern scientific arena. And I think that, to me, it points to keeping the mind as wide open as possible with the understanding that that what we can, what we have seen and known to date may be only a thin fraction of what really is going on. And I think about this in terms of what the, the astronomers and cosmologists say, if you look very, very scientific website by the United States um, National Aeronautic and Space Administration, NASA, they will say on the website there that it appears as though only 5% or less than 5% of the stuff that makes up the universe is stuff that we can detect in any way. The 95% of what is there, we can't say anything about it. They call it dark matter and dark energy. That's a lot of, that's 95% <laughs> is, huh? I don't know. It's something but we can't find it in any way. So that to me points to, well, I have a theory actually, that uh, all of this stuff that goes missing in laundry, like socks and things, but that's dark matter. It, it fills into dark matter and that dark energy is all the effort we make trying to find <laughs> those missing socks. That's, I, I think that's simple, elegant theory there, which I have proposed on uh, many retreats. Um, but it's just a theory. <laughs> That's a lot of socks. Um, anything, I wonder, if, <laughs> I wonder if I'll get through my talk at all, <laughs> but it doesn't matter. So, um, you know, just in exploring the mind, it's really hard to pin it down. You know, we can, we can describe the mind in terms of its functioning, there's processes and functions like the contact at the senses and, um, and then the knowing and mindfulness is a part of mind and emotions and thoughts happen in our mind things and, and feelings of Vedana. Um, we, can, we can talk about processes and functions and things that happen there. We can measure it in that way. And, and so a lot of our our experience of the mind is this contact and then the knowing of it, and then what flows on from that. So it's, it can be seen in this way of, of um, process. And we get very intimate and, and with meditation, we can observe that process very closely and intimately. And, and it's interesting because, you know, we talk about my mind in my mind, same way they would talk about the body, my body, my mind, I make up my mind, and so forth. We, we use words as though it's a thing that we, we have or own. But it seems to have its own agendas and it does its own thing. And we don't have, you know, did, did you decide to have all of the weird thoughts you had today? 
or did you decide that you wanted your mind to wander all over or or remember something really painful that you wish hadn't ever happened and that you could forget or whatever you know it gets up to all kinds of things i mean if any of us were to have a some kind of system where we could we could put on a special cap or something and broadcast our mind over the over the speaker here so everyone could hear it you know hear what's going on in there is anyone here going to volunteer to do that i might be willing to just so you can see that you're not the only one who has a really a lot of weird stuff going on in your mind but also probably you'd all you know leave the retreat maybe and say okay i'm not gonna i'm not gonna hang around with that guy I don't know. I, I think sometimes you'd say, oh, that's not too bad. But sometimes you'd say, well, that's pretty weird. So, you know, I'm not, we're not in control there. <laughs> that seems fairly obvious. All this stuff just happens. You know, I, I loved uh, on this experiment of the mindfulness in mind. So right now, if try thinking a thought like, I, I'm, I'm going to suggest one, may all beings be happy. May all beings be at ease. Now I'm saying those words out loud. I also have that as a thought. I'll do it without speaking now. Now I, I'm very mindful. I notice there's, there's a lot of mindfulness of that in the, that experiment that Anna, I love that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna steal that experiment from you. You can steal anything I ever say, I give it to you totally. So it's a trade. I think you're gonna take something. I said something useful once this retreat and you said you might use it. Forget what it was, some image. Anyway, so it's a, we traded. <laughs> but but all, most of the thoughts that happened for me today, well, I, I don't know, I haven't analyzed it. But I think most of us say that a lot of the thinking that happened, we didn't have that, my, we were just lost in it. You know, we didn't have that mindfulness wasn't there. Or when we became mindful, it just disappeared. So we, we seem to have very little control over what goes on there in some ways. The moods and emotions that come, we didn't decide to have them. Here are some lyrics from a country singer in here in the USA named Jimmy Dale Gilmore. I'm not gonna sing it, but it's a great song. And I think he's actually a meditator, <laughs> pretty sure of it. He says, my mind's got a mind of its own. It takes me out of walking when I'd rather stay at home. It takes me out to parties when I'd rather be alone. Oh, my mind's got a mind of its own. I seem to forget half the things I start. I try to build a house and then I tear the place apart. I freeze myself on fire and then I burn myself on ice. I can't count to one without thinking twice. Well, that's just part of the song. <laughs> I love the last line. I can't count to one without thinking twice. It's like, you know, okay, I'm going to be with my, my breath. And we get like partway through the end breath and, and then, you know, two thoughts, you know, it's like so interesting. It's so interesting. In the Thai forest tradition of Buddhism, in the meditative part of that, and that's 
the lineage that um, some teachers you may have heard of, like Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Sumedho and all of the, the you know, fought their the teachers uh, in Thailand and in, in all over the world who were, who were also students of, uh, Ajahn Chah was a student of Ajahn Man, who I read a quotation of in my last talk. Um, they, they use the word chitta in a particular way at times, and they kind of put a capital C on chitta, and, and they talk about the chitta as though it's a kind of a, they, they have a different way of talking about it, as though it's the um, kind of the, this base of, base of basic awareness within us that knows everything and is already, like Buddha nature maybe you could say, they kind of, uh, they don't use that term, but it has this sense of, um, of the chitta as kind of the, the enlightened mind or heart that's, that's there but gets kind of obscured and is revealed through the practice. Kind of like revealing uh, the sense of revealing one's uh, Buddha nature or something that, that the enlightenment is not finding something we don't have, but revealing something that's obscured. And, and we talk a, a lot about that in, in the way we talk about uh, our practice and how it happens. And, and sometimes it sounds like it's a thing there. And I think it's more because you won't find that kind of language in, say, the Burmese tradition of something that is, you know, you won't, at least not quite in the same way. But to me, it's like the way we look at, um, at light. So light can be measured as a, can be seen and, and experiments done to observe it where it shows up and acts like a particle. And sometimes it acts and behaves like a wave, a wave function. And I'm not a scientist, but I know at least maybe they've gone beyond these two things, but, but it's, it just depends on how you arrange the experiment. It behaves, it has certain ways of behaving depending on how you choose to measure it, but it's not a particle or a wave. There's no mass there. There's no kind of no thing there, but it, it has, but there's, but it has functions and it conveys information and there's pressure. And so depending on how you choose to observe and measure run the experiment of the mind, maybe it looks one way or another way. It looks like it has ongoing inherent existence, or it looks like something that arises and passes, but it doesn't really matter again. It's like mind, mind here, mind here. We don't have to land on that and say it's this way or it's that way. We just have to look and see for ourselves what do we, what's our direct experience of it. But in some, in some of the Pali texts, there's this, this way of talking about the mind that is kind of real similar to the way it's expressed in the Thai forest tradition. So in one teaching, the Buddha described the mind as having this inherently luminous, radiant quality. In the Pali, it's the pabasara chitta, pabasari, pabasara, two words, pabasara means brightly shining luminous, radiant. And he said that this, this is the, the nature of the mind, but that it gets, that nature gets obscured by what he called visiting energies or visiting uh, forces, um, which, which he, the word is kilesa or klesha, 
more in Sanskrit, kilesa, which gets translated as defilement, or I think obscuration. And these are the kilesa is a, is a, a catch-all term for um, the energies of greed, hatred, and delusion, which are seen as the root causes of struggle, stress, and suffering in our lives, and all the ways they, they show up, all the ways they manifest. And they're called the three unwholesome roots, or sometimes the three poisons. And it's understood in this tradition that our suffering in life is related to the presence of these energies. And, and freedom from suffering is understood as when they're not present or at least not or powerless, you could say. And so the Buddha once described or defined uh, Nibbana as the extinction of greed, extinction of hate, extinction of delusion. This I call Nibbana. Nibbana is uh, Nirvana in Sanskrit. It literally means to go out or to be cool cooled out. That word literally means that, but it's, it's this expression of the highest realization and the deepest possible unconditioned peace. But I think we have to be careful of, of the way that we think of these uh, three roots of stress and struggle in our lives, of the kilesas, and, and careful translating them as defilement. I think obscuration is a better word, uh, something that, that um, gets in the way of seeing clearly, that obscures uh, reality, obscures the truth. I like that better because defilement sounds pretty bad, and, and we don't want to think of ourselves as defiled somehow. That makes it sound like it's our personal problem and our fault. And, and it's really just that these are, the way I see them anyway, they're, they're not wrong or evil or bad. They're kind of simple energies, like kind of like a kind of animal maybe. And they, they just know how to do one thing. And so they reflect the, the confused or untrained mind's ability or attempts to deal with the realities of anicca, dukkha, and anatta, that is the truths of change, of unreliability or unsatisfactoriness and uncontrollability. So in other words, the energy of greed, grasping, craving, wanting, uh, there's a question of defilement. What does defilement mean? It means something that well, I'm trying to define it now. <laughs> you could say it obscures, but also it's said to like uh, change, make something unclean perhaps, or un, not good, changes something from, so that it's not good anymore. Maybe it's dirty or wrong, or it has a negative connotation. Anna, can you think of a word in Finnish language that might be good? Well, first of all, sorry about the sound quality. I wasn't expecting to speak, so I'm oh, using this mic. But there's no direct translation for defilement in full Finnish. But we could talk about mielen tahra or mielen 
neurotic space creates a belt like state that forces in the mind that causes suffering. How about sustenance? Sustenance? Not pronouncing it correctly, it's in the chat. S A A S T U N U T. Anyway, I don't oh, want to get. Yeah, that's that's kind of polluted. So it, it polluted. Point to the point to the same direction. Yeah, good. Thank you. Um, where was I? So, so these these energies. So greed, grasping, craving, clinging. Is sees the strategy for happiness to hold on to pleasant things, and so that so it it wants to do that. It thinks that's what will make us happy. And hatred or aversion or resistance thinks that by getting rid of unpleasant things, either pushing it away or getting away from it, that that will work to make us happy. And confusion kind of thinks that disconnecting and tuning out and not being, not feeling things will make us happy. So we don't have to feel what is unpleasant or difficult. So they're, they're trying to be helpful. They just are confused and they, they only know how to do the one thing. So they're not, they can't be educated. We, we have to just see through them in, to the extent that they start to fall away, or at least they aren't, they lose their power and they aren't running the, the show. They're not, they're not in charge of the mind. And so there's a teacher, Tanisaro Bhikkhu Tanjef, who said this about, about this, um, obscuring these visiting energies in obscuring the luminous mind. He said, to perceive the mind's luminosity means understanding that defilements such as greed, aversion, or delusion are not intrinsic to its nature. That means they're not an inherent, uh, they're not a part of the mind, they're visitors. It's like that in that quotation from the Buddha, they're, they're visiting. Um, or maybe not a quote from the Buddha, but that description. Uh, they're, they, they're not part of the mind, they visit the mind. He said, without this understanding, it would be impossible to practice. And, and this is uh, important because if they were just part of our mind, if they were personally our fault and responsibility because of something wrong we did or some way that we are wrong, then we'd never be able to be free of them. But because they're not because they are just visiting forces, then, then they can be rendered powerless. And so they can obscure this uh, Buddha nature, you could say, the luminous radiant mind, the pabhasara citta, but they don't change its nature. So in the same way, uh, one of us, I think Anna used the image of, of clouds in the sky. Well, she used that in terms of like, uh, thoughts and things, but one or both of us at different times are talking about how the mind, the awareness, it's like me saying yesterday or whenever that there's nothing wrong with awareness and on the, in, her, in a different way talking about how the awareness is not changed or affected. Its nature isn't affected by what's present there. So the awareness of anger isn't angry, for example. So part of our practice is is removing these obscurations or reconnecting with this luminous quality of mind or discovering who we are beneath all of the things that get in the way of seeing this luminous radiant mind or our Buddha nature or the natural luminous mind. 
And sometimes we can touch into that. We get a, a taste of that possibility. Moments when, when these energies aren't present, they fall away and we maybe rest in just very simple presence and it feels pure and there's no problem there. There's nothing to fix in any way. But these energies are powerful and they're, um, we, we have to not underestimate the power they have in our lives and in the world. And we've been engaging with them for a long time and we've been engaging with them mostly on their terms. But uh, this training and practice gives us a chance to make a change and start relating to them on our terms. And that's not a small thing. So we start to, we stop relating to them as our personal problem is taking, we don't take them personally. We say, oh, they're just part of nature. <laughs> These visiting energies, they're an aspect of nature also. And we start to uh, connect with this luminous, radiant mind that is always there and is already free. You could say it's our true nature or our Buddha nature, if you wish. And so I want to say a little bit more about the, the Buddha's teachings uh, on mindfulness of the mind, because I think it's useful here uh, to touch into that a little more. And, and again, it's repeating some of the things that Anna said, but this is a, uh, the a whole section is one of the Statipatthanas, one of the establishments of mindfulness, as, as she was saying. And, it, and it's a very short section. It's very simple and sharp and very powerful. And it begins with a question. The Buddha often began his teachings by asking uh, what is called a rhetorical question. That is a question that he's going to answer, basically. He says, and how practitioners... Does one abide contemplating mind as mind? And then the instructions he gives are, are simple and, and I'm repeating stuff you've already heard here. One understands a mind affected by desire as mind affected by desire. One understands mind unaffected by desire as mind unaffected by desire. Same for hatred and delusion. So we look and see. This is... This is the mind where desire has arisen, craving, wanting, lust, all whatever different words. And this is the mind where that is not arising, <laughs> where that is not there. The mind is not affected. That energy is not present. Just really simple. So we just don't know if these things are present or, or not present, present or absent. And it's interesting because there's no instruction there that says if there's no active measures to, to try to get rid of, say, anger or, or, or craving. It doesn't say if you, if you notice that craving is present, get all upset and try to fight and, and go into battle with your mind and, and heart and, and try, to, try to suppress it and get rid of it. That's not in the teaching at all. All it says is no, it's here or it's not here. And I think that's so great. It's like, 
the job of our job as meditators is to have this receptive awareness to recognize what's going on. And the main reason that the Buddha, I think, taught this way, this non-interfering attitude, is that it, it starts to unbind our conditioning around either reactivity on one hand or suppression and denial on the other hand. So the mental agitation, the tension, the struggle that we often find in response to what's going on in the mind, the contents, is reduced not by struggling with it, <laughs> getting into battle with it, or pretending it's not there, but through just observing it and seeing how it operates. And through this process, those energies start to unbind and release on their own. And so I thought Anna spoke about this in a beautiful way when she talked about it, the mindfulness allowing for this process of recognition and acceptance and that this can shift the way we relate to the contents of our mind and what's going on. And it has, you know, it has such direct practical application, which I also really love. So for example, I was doing a retreat by myself at home once some years ago now. And, and uh, so I was just practicing the way we are here, sitting and walking um, on my own. And, and at one point I, I remember that I got quite, um, I was kind of in conflict with the fact that my mind was very restless and wandering and I wanted it to be uh, calm and collected and uh, concentrated. <laughs> and I was mindful, I knew that I didn't, there was not like, there was resistance and aversion and I was aware there was mindfulness, but there wasn't, a, there was some not complete acceptance, <laughs> shall we say. And then I remembered this teaching, oh, I just have to know, my job is not to try to fix this, my job is to know, this is the mind that is restless and scattered, not concentrated. And as soon as I said, oh, I just like took a step back. Oh, it's like this. That's my job. It's like this. Immediately, all stress and struggle, <laughs> you know, everything, all that fell away. There was no longer any problem. <laughs> it didn't, it wasn't that the mind was still wandering and but I wasn't not struggling with it. It was, oh, okay, it's like this now. That's my job, just to know like this. And, and there was suddenly was not a problem. And it wasn't because I fixed it, changed it, battled it, beat it into submission. It's because I just said, recognized and accepted the reality of what was there. And total shift in just that, like that. So, it's really great when we find ourselves struggling with something in our mind, take a little step back and say, ask the question, do I need to struggle? Or does this struggling help? <laughs> if it helps, okay, maybe it's a good thing to do. But otherwise just say, no, I just have to know it's like this. And that turns the attention towards the awareness that is not struggling, that is not restless, that is not affected by whatever it is that we're having trouble with. The awareness of that is just fine. There's no problem with awareness. So there's a safety place there. It's really, really helpful. 
the teacher, some of you, I know he's been to Finland, uh, I don't know, several times, Sayada Utejaniya. Um, many of you, some of you have maybe practiced with him there. And I want to read a quotation from him. He said, because the mind is covered by defilements, we are unable to see Dhamma or to understand nature as it is. What is the meaning of nature? It is cause and effect. The cause and effect process itself is nature. Whatever is happening in the present moment is nature, is Dhamma. Even defilements are Dhamma. They become nature. Nature is becoming, nature is arising, knowing is arising and awareness is arising. Object and mind, object and mind. So he likes to talk in this way. In nature, there is nobody there. Nature is just nature. Nature is not us, not them, not others. Nature is just nature. Dhamma is ever present and there is Dhamma talk everywhere. Nature is also teaching us Dhamma, but we are unable to hear. We can't know or see Dhamma, that is reality, because of the kilesas in the mind and because there isn't enough understanding or wisdom. If we see nature as it really is, the mind is free and free from the defilements. So it's really the shift of view, of perspective. And that's where freedom is to be found. So through this practice, we start relating to these visiting energies that obscure the luminous mind on our terms. Because when we relate to them on their terms, either by taking them personally and falling into struggle with them or acting out the mind states they give rise to, which is really dangerous sometimes. That's how wars are started. But if we stop feeding them by acting them out and falling into struggle with them, they start to weaken on their own. If you, we don't feed them, they start to fall away. Because, and this is powerful, all of the problems that are avoidable, <laughs> such as wars and injustice and ah, so much, that is the result of the actions of the humans. That every, it's born in the mind, born in the mind, isn't it? And we can see this, I can see it with very clearly in the minds of some of the world leaders <laughs> who have a lot of, some of them, if you can see there, there's those defilements of a lot of power in their minds. And, you know, if greed and suffering and aversion and confusion have the upper hand in the mind and, and then actions are born of those, they don't go in a good direction. And these are the seeds of war, of genocide, of inhumanity. That's where that starts. It's not just out there going around. It starts inside someone's mind. So this is powerful for happiness, happiness in the world. Understanding this is, is huge. Now it's important to understand, I'm going to try to wrap this up, that these, these unwholesome roots have counterparts of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, or we could say generosity, 
love and wisdom. And there's this understanding in this practice, this implicit understanding that in the absence of the unwholesome, the wholesome is naturally there. And, and in the language that I spoke about with the metta practice where the Buddha says, one abides pervading one quarter and so on with a mind, heart imbued with loving kindness. Part, at the end of that, he says, abundant, exalted, immeasurable. That's like this luminous, vast luminosity without uh, freed from hatred, without hatred and without ill will. So it's like when those are not there, then, then the metta is just there. <laughs> When it's so we don't have to find those things and get them and stick them in, stick them inside. We just remove what obscures their presence. It's great news. It's a great view of things. And so when we understand this, then we see which energies are worth cultivating, following, which ones we should stop feeding and turn away from and let go. So we just see what's running the show. It's like, who's driving? Uh, Anna used the word of the bus, getting on the mind of the thought bus. Well, I'm gonna use the bus image again. If our mind and heart are a bus, we wanna know who's driving. And if greed is driving, it's gonna go over here. And if aversion is driving, it's gonna go over there. And if confusion is driving, it's gonna go all over the place. So we wanna be in the driver's seat but that doesn't mean we have to chop and, and battle and fight <laughs> great hatred and revolution, but we need to put them in a car seat, in a child's car seat, and give them a cookie or something. We don't have to hate them and fight them. We just have to say, you know, I'm going to drive because you don't know how to drive. And if you drive, it's going to go in a bad direction and we're both gonna suffer. So this understanding is also the doorway to compassion and forgiveness. Because when we study our own mind and heart, we study everyone's mind and heart and we really can see what's going on. And so we can't forgive harmful actions, but we might be able to start forgiving the confused suffering mind that gave rise to those actions. That's an important distinction. We don't forgive harmful actions. Some actions are not, never will be, and should never be forgivable. But we might be able to understand the confused suffering mind of a being and start to have compassion for that. And that can be a doorway towards um, not throwing that person out of our heart completely. That we still draw clear boundaries. It's not okay to do these things. We can be very firm and clear and still have a heart with compassion and love in it because we understand these actions are born of confused suffering mind. And boy, am I glad I'm not living with that mind because it would be a suffering state. Some of these minds that are doing some really bad stuff in the world. And you should be give praise to the, the devil, the, the angels, or whoever you can think of, the gods, that that's not your mind. That's a suffering mind. That's a hell realm. 
for sure. A mind that is that confused. But that being still wants to be happy like you or me. They just have no idea. So confused about what may, might lead to happiness. But we have the possibility to actually see what leads to happiness and what leads to suffering. And I'm going to go that away. I'm going to choose that, the road to happiness through my own understanding. And so then, then we, if we stop fighting with these energies, these obscurations of mind and start relating to them on our terms, see that they're just visiting, then they, be, they change in that moment. They're not obstacles to our freedom and happiness. They're the very vehicle that will take us to it. Really good. Really a good. These teachings are so fantastic, profound. So I'm going to end with uh, some words from the teacher from Thailand uh, named Ajahn Man that I mentioned, who's the teacher of Ajahn Chah. And he, his word for this pabasara chitta, the luminous radiant mind, is the primal mind. He called it the primal. Primal means basic or fundamental or first or, yeah, first really prime. Primal. He said this. The mind is something more radiant than anything else can be, but because passing defilements come and obscure it, it loses its radiance like the sun when obscured by clouds. Don't go thinking that the sun goes after the clouds. Instead, the clouds come drifting along and obscure the sun. So meditators, when they know in this manner, should do away with these counterfeits, these visiting defilements, by analyzing them shrewdly. When one develops the mind to the stage of the primal mind, this will mean that all counterfeits are destroyed, or rather, counterfeit things won't be able to reach into the primal mind because the bridge making the connection will have been destroyed. Even though the mind may then still have to come into contact with the preoccupations of the world, its contact will be like that, like that of a bead of water rolling across a lotus leaf. So a little different way of speaking there, but the same sense of these visiting obscurations, clouds. When we see through them, they fall away and the luminous mind shines forth. And these energies are either, they never arise or they're rendered powerless. They have no power over the mind. Well, let's have a moment of quiet here. And let these words drift away like a cloud drifting away. And I'll ring my chimes in just a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.